Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Mark Oakley, and it is my pleasure to welcome each and every one of you here to St. Paul's this evening. It's just great to see so many of you here, and you are really very welcome. I'll introduce our speaker in just a moment, but for those of you who've not been to one of our events here before, let me quickly tell you how it works. In a moment, Professor Wright will speak about what, after a lifetime of study, he believes is the heart of the Gospels. He'll speak for about 35 minutes or so, and this then enables us to have plenty of time for you to ask him questions. And if you have a question, we ask you to write it down on the back of your program and hold it up to be collected. And you can do this at any stage during the talk or after the talk. You don't need to worry. We won't think you need to be excused or anything. Just hold up the paper and one of our home team will come and collect it from you. Your question will then, with all the technology the Church of England can muster, miraculously appear here on my laptop. And contrary to popular opinion, I'm not actually catching up on Strictly as I sit here. I'm trying to get as many of your questions channeled through as possible. And we'll collect those questions of yours until about 7.40. Please try and keep them brief and, and please keep them legible. We're also taking questions via Twitter using the hashtag NTWrite. So if you'd like to send us your question through your mobile phone, you just type in your question and include hashtag NTWrite, and we will find it. We'll end at 8 o'clock, and then there's a bookstall here where you can buy some of Professor Wright's books, and he's very kindly said he will sign copies as well at the desk over there. And now it gives me great pleasure to introduce our speaker. Tom Wright is one of the most distinguished Bible scholars in the world. Until recently, the Bishop of Durham, and before that, canon theologian at Westminster Abbey. He is now research professor of New Testament and early Christianity at the University of St. Andrews. He is also rather astonishingly, the author of over 50 books about the New Testament. Each is as scholarly as it is accessible, as concerned for the nurturing of faith today as for historical clarity. The unexamined Bible is not worth reading, he has written, and he has encouraged so many not just the religious professionals, to begin that exploration and to discover for themselves just what he means. And out of this life's work, always consistent, sometimes controversial, and especially in a recent book, comes his challenging assertion that something is very wrong with the church. That bit's not too surprising for some of us, <laughs> But the next bit might be, in the church, he argues, we've all forgotten what the four Gospels 
are all about. It is this and his compelling, provocative, energized understanding of Jesus that he's so kindly come to talk to us about tonight. Bishop Wright doesn't often leave his desk in the north of Scotland these days because those books don't write themselves. So we're particularly thrilled to have him with us this evening here under a dome that's just about big enough to contain his brain. <laughs> Would you then please join me in welcoming Bishop Tom Wright. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Canon Oakley, and thank you all for being here this evening. I have spoken here before once or twice, and remember the length of the echo. And those of you who have heard me speak before will know that I do not normally slow down for echoes. So I am going to try, but I hope that I won't get too fast for those hanging on at the back to be able to follow what I'm saying. If you went out on the streets in the city of London here and asked a random passerby what Jesus had to say that might be relevant to today's world, among the colourful answers you might get, someone would probably quote Mark 12:17, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. And many people in our world would mean by that Yes, there's a nice big church-state split. You Christians get on and say your prayers and go to heaven, and we will run the world down here by Caesar's rules. And among the ironies and muddles of using that text to make that point is that when Jesus said it, it was making almost exactly the opposite point. And I begin with this plunging rashly into the middle of tonight's subject because here we see, close up and dangerous, two things that Jesus was all about, which the Gospels do their best to explain, but which modern readings often obscure. It was, of course, a trick question. Should we or shouldn't we pay tribute to Caesar? Taxes were just as hot a topic in Jesus' day as they are now. But even more so then because they were imposed by the hated Romans and because when Jesus was a boy, there had been anti-tax riots leading to brutal repressions, including crucifixions. So bad memories sharpened the question to a poisoned tip. If Jesus says pay the tax, then we'll know that all his talk about God's kingdom is about as powerful as a dead sheep. If he says, don't pay the tax, then the first century Corbynistas will love him, but the authorities will have him on toast. But what they don't realize is that Jesus can tap into older memories as well. 200 years before, still powerful in folk memory, Judas Maccabeus and his brothers had mounted a daring and successful revolt against the superpower of that day, Syria. And their watchword was, pay back the Gentiles as they deserve and keep the commandments of God. 
behave, check it out in the Greek of the Septuagint, very similar to the words Jesus uses, pay them back a paying back as they deserve. So what's Jesus saying? Pay back Caesar what he's got coming to him. What sort of a quizzling slogan might that be? Jesus asks for a coin. Some of you may have seen there was a BBC series in Holy Week a few years ago, and they did this brilliantly as a bit of street theatre. You probably can't see at the back. Jesus asks for a coin. Whose is this image, superscription, all this blasphemous stuff? And then the crunch. You'd better pay Caesar back in his own coin, hadn't you? and you'd better pay God back in his own coin. Of course, it's a trick answer to a trick question. But this is nothing to do with a church-state split. Yes, Caesar has a legitimate claim, but at some point he will need confronting, though not in the way that the revolutionaries of the day wanted to do it. But the claim of God, whose image is born not just by coins, but by every living human being, this claim overrides, supersedes, trumps, upstages all other claims. When you put Jesus' saying in its historical context, it is anything but a mandate for a modernist split of religion and politics. As we see in Jesus' trial before Pilate, Pilate does have some legitimate authority, but God will hold all authorities accountable for what they do with that delegated vocation. So here are two things that Mark and the others want to bring out, which are modern readings easily obscure. First, when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, he really did mean that this was the time for God to become king, to take his power and reign in a whole new way, a way which would not merely challenge Caesar's kingdom, but challenge Caesar's type of kingdom. But secondly, he was drawing onto himself the weight of Israel's ancient traditions. What have we done with that? we have turned the gospel narrative about a world-shattering event into fragments of new teaching about a religion, complete with cute little ethical maxims. And we have come to the text with our modern assumption that religion is over there and politics is over there, and we have read that modern dogma into the story, whether it makes sense or not. And it makes no sense. Because the whole meaning of God's kingdom, going back through the Psalms and the prophets to the Torah itself, is about the one true God calling time on the world's wicked empires and setting up a radically different kind of empire instead. But the modern split world dogma has affected scholarship and preaching and popular assumptions all down the line. By the way, as you will realize, my task tonight is wildly impossible. I cannot do more than summarize some key points. You'll have to read the books. Let's jump to a different but equally well-known example, the story of the so-called prodigal son. Rembrandt painted it. Preachers and spiritual directors use it all the time. Millions of humble souls have found in it a wonderful encouragement 
to come back from the far country to a father's overflowing, generous welcome. Yes, of course. But there's so much more going on as well. For a start, Jesus is plugging into some of the oldest biblical themes. The young son who goes off into the far country and comes back to find his older brother less than fully happy. Think Jacob and Esau for a start. But think as well of the powerful story of the second temple Jewish world, the horribly elongated time of exile, not just geographically in Babylon, but politically and theologically, as Daniel 9 insisted, an exile going on for half a millennium. When is God going to sort it out at last? And what will that look like? And that ultimate return from exile, as Isaiah saw, is all about God becoming king, that theme again. And Jesus is saying, it's happening. This is what's going on here and now. It doesn't look like you thought it would, but it's real. This, your brother, was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. A challenge to those who couldn't see that the kingdom was there and they had to recognize and welcome it. You see, as with so many of the parables, it isn't an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. We have domesticated these powerful stories so that the wonderful meaning they rightly have for us as individuals is all the meaning we allow them. No. When Jesus was telling stories which often were coded messages about God and his purposes for Israel and the world, he wasn't giving abstract teaching about God or heaven. He was explaining what he was up to at the time. They asked him, why are you eating and celebrating with all the wrong people? Answer, once upon a time there was a shepherd who lost a sheep. Once upon a time there was a woman who lost a coin. Once upon a time there was a father who had two sons. The message is both comforting and disturbing. Who is the older brother who doesn't want the father to welcome the younger one back? You see, people used to sneer when I was first studying theology. This was commonly said that, oh, well, Jesus told stories about God, and then the early church later on told stories about Jesus as though they were divinizing him in retrospect. Not so. Jesus told these God stories in order to explain what he himself was doing. Something was happening then and there. This was never simply timeless spiritual teaching, though to be sure it transports across all times and cultures. This was about a unique event taking place right then. And that's what our modern world and church has often not wanted to hear. Or take a third rather obvious example. Jesus came to Jerusalem one last time. And he did something in the temple which caused frantic reactions and led quite quickly to his arrest and his death. We have often called this incident the cleansing of the temple. And we've interpreted it in terms of Jesus trying to clean up Jerusalem's religion, to purge it of commercialism and so forth. But the four Gospels in their different ways make it clear that it was far more than that. Face it, it was Passover time liberation time, time for God to overthrow the pharaohs of the world and set his people free. 
The Jewish people then and now knew and know the Passover story better than most of us know the Christmas and Easter stories. And they knew that in the book of Exodus, the point of Israel being freed from Egypt was to go out into they knew not where, to worship God there and then come into their inheritance. The book of Exodus ends magnificently with the construction of the tabernacle and the glorious divine presence coming to dwell in it. Exodus 40 echoes Genesis 1 and 2, and that's quite deliberate. This is a new creation, a microcosmos, a little world. The consolidation of the promise to Abraham that through his family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's what Exodus is all about. God rescuing his people and coming to dwell in their midst so that they can be his royal priesthood. That's the narrative that Jesus was deliberately plugging into. Because Passover wasn't just a story, it's a festival with liturgy and hymns and dramatic actions focused on the temple and the meal and praying for God's kingdom to come. So when Jesus came to Jerusalem and performed his dramatic action, bringing the sacrificial system to a shuddering halt for a short but deeply symbolic moment, then taking his followers off for a private meal that both was and wasn't a Passover meal, he was saying something far more powerfully through these combined and contextualized symbols than any words could convey. He was saying, this is the time. This is the place. This is how the ultimate Passover is happening. The new exodus, the real return from exile. This is how the kingdom of God is coming. And its focus will not be on this temple of wood and stone, but on a different kind of temple altogether. Jesus had acted throughout his public career as if he were the temple in person. If you wanted forgiveness or healing, you might go to the temple. No, now you come to Jesus. But now Jerusalem wasn't big enough for both of them. He had his eye on the prize, but a very strange prize. He had already said, if I by the finger of God cast out demons, then God's kingdom has arrived. It's coming upon you. But how was it going to arrive? He had his own vision of how that would be accomplished. What, after all, was a Messiah supposed to do? Different traditions said different things, but at the heart we get general answers. A Messiah must fulfill the scriptures, must defeat the ultimate enemies, that's the pharaohs and the Babylons and so on, must rebuild or cleanse the temple so that Israel's God can come back there in glory. Exodus 40 again, Ezekiel 43. He must establish God's reign not only over Israel but over the world. This is a vision of radical cosmic renewal and we have turned it into religion. This is a story of the world set free, of humans set free and we've turned it into private psychotherapy or personal ethics. Now, those are vital in their place but inadequate if we substitute them for the big picture. 
Jesus believed it was his calling to liberate Israel and the world once and for all from the grip of the darkest of enemies and to set up the new microcosmos, the new tabernacle, the dwelling place of the living God, made not from stone and timber, but from living, breathing human beings with himself as the ultimate human, the Son of Man, suffering at the hands of the beasts, as in Daniel 7, and then exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. Never forget, when Jesus wanted to explain to his followers what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal. Now, even if you think that Jesus was totally mistaken, that his dreams died with him, that Christianity as we know it is based on a mistake or simply wishful thinking, then you must still admit that this vision of a new reality coming to birth, this very much first century Jewish vision, remains noble and powerful. I've argued elsewhere that the picture I've sketched and a thousand other details that I haven't mentioned are basically thoroughly historically credible. They belong in the 20s or 30s of the first century. Jesus of Nazareth was not teaching a new religion, even granted that the word religion meant something quite different then anyway. Nor was he telling people the secret about how to go to heaven after they died. He has remarkably little to say about that since his message and the prayer he taught us was not about how we can get to heaven, but about how heaven and heaven's rule and heaven's authority comes to earth. Nor was he coming simply to launch yet another protest movement. Though when we grasp what the Gospels are saying, there will be a new energy and sense of direction for a good deal of protest. Nor was he offering simply a way to reorder your private interiority. Though when you are grasped by his message and sign on to take up his cross, it will indeed turn you upside down and inside out some of which will be wonderfully comforting and some of which, as he warned, will be profoundly discomforting. He was claiming to inaugurate God's sovereign rule on earth as in heaven. In other words, a form of theocracy. But whereas that very word sends shivers down our modern Western democratic spines, the whole point was that what Jesus was claiming was a cruciform theocracy, the inauguration of God's sovereign saving rule on earth as in heaven by means of the cross. This is, of course, where the modern world and much of the modern church rebels angrily we got rid of that theocratic nonsense in the 18th century. We don't want it back again. And what's happened in a nutshell is that the basic Epicureanism of the Enlightenment, that's the idea of a split world with the gods away up in the attic and the world progressing under its own steam down here, this has been so taken for granted in the Western world, 
that all our readings of the Gospels, all our thinking about Jesus and his message, all our public and political life, all our theorizing about morals and meanings and marriage and mysticism and much besides has been forced into the wrong framework. And the Gospels themselves tell us that this is wrong. We are falsifying the record. That's just not what was going on. Of course, secularism doesn't want theocracy of any form at any price, but the churches have regularly gone along with this, colluding with the idea of that God and Caesar split, consenting to look after people's eternal destinies and leaving the politicians to run the planet. And that's why so often the meaning of the cross has shifted dramatically in popular assumption from being the extraordinary way in which the living God wins the ultimate victory over the principalities and powers to being simply the mechanism for dealing with individual sins. Don't get me wrong, dealing with sins is really important as well. It is actually part of the means by which the cosmic victory is won. But the Gospels are talking basically about the cosmic victory. Wishful thinking? Many would say so. And it would be if it ends simply with the cross. The church so often, though, hasn't known what to do with Easter. We have oscillated between demythologizing it into simply the rise of faith among Jesus' disappointed followers or making it the glorious miracle at the end of a sad story, perhaps proving that God really can do powerful tricks and that we really will go to heaven after all. I'm caricaturing, but only a bit. But none of this will do. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is the only thing that will actually explain historically why the church got going and why it took the shape it did. I've argued that elsewhere in great detail. Questions abound, I'm happy to deal with them, but for the moment I'm going to assume that argument and move to the vital result. Even if you're going to decide that the Gospels are telling a pack of well-meaning lies, or even ill-meaning lies, at least let's be clear what it is that they're saying. They are not offering Jesus as a superman figure, a magic man doing tricks to con people into a new religion. They are not talking about Jesus as a first century Che Guevara, a bearded revolutionary offering a socialist utopia. They are not giving us Jesus as an ethical teacher, though he did a lot of that, a moral example, though he certainly is that, a spiritual guru, or even, taken out of context, an atoning sacrifice. They are not presenting us with a Jesus who simply makes us feel good about ourselves. All of these point to some elements in his teaching, but as so often, when you take some elements and highlight them away from the whole, they distort radically. The point is, and it's the resurrection that enables us to say this without the ifs and buts, the point is that with Jesus something happened 
because of which the world is a different place. Let's be clear. It isn't different in the way people then or now might have wanted or expected. But as the four Gospels tell it, something happened in those 30 years and those three days at their climax because of which it makes vital new sense to talk about new creation. It makes sense to speak of a new temple. It makes sense to speak of a new humanity. And it makes sense above all, not just to speak of it, but to live it, to sign on, to hear the call of Jesus right now, to be part of his kingdom project, to recognize, as Bonhoeffer said, that when Christ calls you, he bids you come and die, to die in baptism, to die to the sin which seems so vital and central a part of you, to die to the social and cultural and intellectual and political expectations that swirl in their dangerous currents around you, and to follow instead into the new life with kingdom tasks to perform and with Jesus himself leading the way. That is how the resurrection narratives in the four Gospels leave us. I'll come back to that in a moment. But let me say something else about how the four Gospels work. Some of you tonight have probably read the four Gospels many times. Many of you are used to hearing them in church. The trouble is that in our private readings and in church, what we normally only get is one little snippet and we then take that, that's not a bad thing to do, but we often forget what the larger narrative is trying to do. None of what I'm saying now is new in, in itself, it's the combination which I'm trying to put together which means what it means. My colleague Richard Burridge here in London, I don't know if he's here tonight, has been saying some of this for years. My friend and colleague Richard Hayes from Duke University in North America is saying this in a large and important book on echoes of scripture in the Gospels to be published early next year. But I still think that most ordinary churchgoers and a great many who study and teach the Gospels haven't begun to come to terms with the multi-layered story that they're telling. Face it, human life is multi-layered. Put together love and art and food and drink and politics and philosophy and shopping and science and monarchy and money and war and death and you can go on and on. And most of that is going on in our society, our minds, our hearts, our imaginations all the time. And we shouldn't be surprised if, like a great symphonic poem, the Gospels themselves are multi-layered, working in several dimensions at once. When we know how to do the little readings, that can still work. I began with three fragments earlier on, but we need the larger narrative. And what I want to do just a moment is to sketch four basic strands which come rushing together in different ways in the four Gospels. First, the Gospels all tell the story of Jesus as the story of how Israel's story reached its intended climax. The philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein said that the Hebrew scriptures offer us a torso and that the gospels offer us the head for that torso. 
They affirm the ancient Hebrew story, even while affirming that this is where it was all supposed to lead. This is how the ancient dream of the sovereign rescuing rule of the Creator God had to come about. The Gospels achieve this in many different ways, weaving together Torah and prophecy and Psalms, not as isolated proof texts, but as the single great story summed up in the apocalyptic language of Daniel about the pagan kingdoms that will be overthrown by God's kingdom. The second strand is that the Gospels all tell the story of Jesus as the launching of the radically new community, and yet in radical continuity with the family of Abraham. The Gospels are not describing the foundation of another religion, another ism, but rather of the launching and modeling and making of a new way of being human. Third and most startling still, the four Gospels, all of them, not only John as we used to think, tell the story of Jesus as the story of how Israel's God fulfilled his long promise to return in person to rescue the world and make his home in it. Of course, this depends on the further point that the risen Jesus is now somehow strangely in charge of the world. Matthew's Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I think it's one of the hardest sayings for us to believe today. But it also depends on the assumption that the risen Jesus gives his own powerful spirit to his followers to enable them to be his people in and for the world. But the point is, that what was later called incarnation, the embodiment of Israel's God in the person of Jesus, was deep within the story from the very start. Fourth strand, as I've hinted, the narrative of Israel's God coming back in person to bring Israel's story to its climax must be the story of the final great clash between the creator God and the idolatrous empires of the world. That's the story you find right through the Old Testament. And it's the strands from the Old Testament that make that point that come rushing together in the Gospels. To read this story in an apolitical or anti-political manner is to falsify it before you start. So the Gospels therefore bring together and hold together without any sense of strain or strangeness what the church and the watching world have found it remarkably difficult to combine, the kingdom and the cross. When I was in Durham, I knew many clergy and parishes who focused on the kingdom. Here is Jesus feeding the hungry, rescuing the outcast. We'll go and do the same. But then the puzzle, what a pity he died so young. And I knew many other clergy and parishes who focused on the cross. Jesus died for our sins so that we can go to heaven. And then the opposite puzzle, for them it would have been quite enough if Jesus had been born of a virgin and died on a cross and never done anything in between. Which means that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John were wasting their time. This dilemma is a telltale symptom of the whole problem of post-enlightenment Western Christianity. 
The Gospels tell the story of how the cross wins the victory of the kingdom, the messianic kingdom, of how the kingdom came and comes, not in the manner of earthly kingdoms, but in a different way altogether. Cruciform theocracy again. Jesus said, the rulers of this world do it one way, by bullying people and so on. We're going to do it the other way because the Son of Man came, not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Power stood on its head if only the church had taken that seriously. I promised to say something about what all this might mean today and in the few minutes remaining to me I'm going to try and do a little of that. More will emerge in questions. For me, the biggest difficulty is to get people to grasp the idea of what in the trade we call inaugurated eschatology. Something that Israel was waiting to happen at the end which had begun to happen through Jesus' activity in his death and resurrection and ascension. Something because of which the world is a radically different place. Now, the Western Enlightenment of the 18th century and after has hated that message because its own claim has been that nothing really happened with Jesus except a few new religious options for those so inclined. And that the real turning point of history was the 18th century with new science and technology and Western democracy. And that clash stands behind many of our puzzles today. Science and democracy and so on, these are gifts from God, but they are not the kingdom of God. And where I see the gospel biting at the macro level has to do with the way in which Western society has bought so deeply into the narratives of the Enlightenment and then can't understand what's gone wrong when the tragedies of the world quite literally wash up on our shores as they've been doing. What we see today with the refugee crisis is in part the result of horribly bad decisions over the last two decades, but in particular our failure to understand the narrative. We have told ourselves stories, demythologized Exodus stories actually, about getting rid of tyrants so that peace and love and flower power can automatically break out and Western democracy. How naive could we be? Instead, the gospel vision of a world under the gentle and wise rule of Jesus, think of the Sermon on the Mount, take, tells a very different story. Read Psalm 72 if you want the biblical vision of human rule, where the needs of the poor and the helpless are the absolute priority. And then look at Jesus doing exactly that. The postmodernists are right. The big stories of modernity have let us down. But postmodernity has no new story to put in its place. And it hates the very idea that there would be such a story. We, with the Gospels, have such a story, but it is a love story, not a power story. We must model it ourselves and urge it upon our rulers as the only way forward. And so too with the other great postmodern critiques, truth and power and self. Read John 18 and 19 and see Jesus arguing with Pontius Pilate, the kingdom of God confronting the kingdom of the world, arguing about kingdom and truth and power. 
and then Jesus going to the cross with the heaviest of ironies to bring about the true kingdom, to express the ultimate truth and to put into effect real power. Because when people often say as they do, why doesn't God do something? They always seem to assume that if God was really in control, he'd send in the tanks and stop the bullies and the unscrupulous getting away with it. But according to the Sermon on the Mount, when God wants to change the world, he doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the meek and the mourners and the merciful and the justice-hungry people and the peacemakers and the incorruptibly pure in heart. That was never a list of qualities you needed to try to achieve to get to heaven. It was always a list of human characteristics through which God would bring his heaven on earth. That is how God works. And by the time the bullies and the arrogant have woken up, the meek and the mourners and the merciful have built hospitals and schools and they're looking after the sick and the wounded. They're feeding the hungry and rescuing the helpless. And they are telling the powerful and the people with vested interests that this is what a genuinely human society looks like. Thank God that the church has been doing this from the very beginning. Thank God that some of you here tonight are working at the sharp end of this project right now. But often our grasp of that vocation, almost instinctively as praying Christians, has, has been stronger than our understanding of the integrated theological message of the Gospels that in fact underlies it. But this integrated message will strengthen and direct us as we go to these tasks. And specifically in our speaking of truth to power. The people who really hate us doing that are of course the newspapers. Because they are convinced that speaking truth to power is their job. So they too, like the politicians, want us in the church to go on saying our prayers and keeping out of their way. But of course, the more we say our prayers, which always focus on thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven, the more we cannot refrain from speaking as Jesus did to Pilate, even if they crucify us for it. And for the self, that great bastion of modernity and object of postmodern destruction, out of that muddle has come a great and often unhealthy obsession once more, not only with myself, but with my identity. And often people suppose that the point of Christian Christianity is to affirm my identity of whatever sort. That is Gnosticism, not the gospel. Jesus spoke of losing oneself in order to find it. And the gospels are written in such a way that they draw us into that losing and finding dynamic where nothing remains the same except the Father's love. There's much more to be said down that line, but not now. But let me, as I close, make this sharply personal. The final scene of John's gospel is written not as an end, but as a beginning. And in that beginning are new vocations. Mary Magdalene wants to cling to Jesus, but instead is told to go and tell those feckless male disciples that he is alive again and is ascending to the Father. 
Thomas wants to fit Jesus into his proto-scientific epistemology. He wants to touch and see. Jesus invites him to do just that, but invites him also to move beyond to the recognition of the new creation which includes and transforms but also transcends the old. And Simon Peter, he had let Jesus down so badly and he has to face the triple question parallel to his triple denial. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter, in his response, can't bring himself to use the love word, the agape word. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I'm your friend. Jesus repeats the question, and Peter repeats his less than adequate answer. And then the third time, Jesus uses Peter's word, Simon, son of John, are you my friend? Phyllis me. Peter is upset that Jesus has, as it were, dropped the bar a bit. He feels the steam has gone out of the conversation. Lord, he says, you know everything. You know I'm your friend. But I think what Jesus is doing is saying to Simon, and in John's mind, not just Simon, but all of us, very well, Peter, if that's where you are, that's where we'll start. And then he commissions him for the work to be done and for the cross that Peter too must carry. And so the massive narrative of new creation, new temple, new life, of kingdom and cross and resurrection, of scripture fulfilled and heaven come to earth, this massive narrative comes to each one of us to catch us up into its sweep and substance. And when we say as we are bound to do, no, I'm, I'm not there, I'm not ready for that. I'm not up for all, that's too much. I can't grasp it anyway then Jesus will say, that's okay. If that's where you are, that's where we'll start. Now, follow me. Now, my friends, there are a thousand more things I'd love to have talked to you about tonight. I haven't dotted any I's or crossed any T's, but I hope I've made it clear at the center of it all that the Gospels tell the story not of the founding of a new religion, not merely of Jesus as a moral or religious hero to be imitated, not of a new way of escaping this world and going to heaven, not of a way of finding how to be comfortable in our own skins, but of Jesus as Israel's Messiah and the world's true Lord, the living and loving and dying embodiment of the one true and living God, launching God's kingdom on earth by his public career, his death and resurrection and ascension, calling men and women and children everywhere to share his life, to be rescued by his death, to celebrate his resurrection and to live under his ascended lordship. My prayer for the church in its vital witness to all this in the days to come and for all of us here tonight, is that we may hear that summons and play our small parts in the work Jesus has by his spirit for his people in these difficult and dangerous days. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bishop Tom, very much indeed. And now it's over to you.
Um, it's time to write down your questions, to hold them up. They'll be collected, and I'll try and do my best in uh, passing as many as I can um, on to Bishop Tom here. Uh, some have already started to come through. Thank you very much indeed. Quite a lot of the questions that are coming through are, are focused around kingdom, the idea of, as in your book, how God became king. And I was wondering whether you think that actually when you look at what Jesus said about the kingdom, he seems persistently figurative, doesn't he? He, he refers to it a lot, but doesn't quite tell us what it is. Um, and, and there are questions here. Do you think Jesus would use the phrase kingdom of God today? If not, how might he proclaim it? I, is this a, is this a, a metaphor that yeah. resonates still? Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is a great question, and uh, I, I often get asked this question in America because people say, <laughs> well, of course, you in Britain have kings and queens, so you understand that, but mm. we in America don't. Mm. And I usually point out that the President of the United States is much more like a first-century king than anything we've had in this country for the last 200 years at least, which kind of diffuses it a bit. Uh, for me, the crunch is this. Jesus' world was full of dangerous, horrible kingdoms, um, symbolized by Caesar on the one hand, by Herod, by other kingdoms around. And yet Jesus stuck with this very richly biblical theme, which is based on the model of kingship that you find, as I said, in the Psalms. And it's as though Jesus is saying, God actually wants, because of who God is, his world to be run in such a way that the poor and the weak are looked after, that justice is done, that all sorts of things that aren't being done do get done, and so on. And that that idea of an ordered, healthy world is not something he's prepared to, to give up on, as it were. So he's reclaiming the biblical notion of kingdom within a context where a lot of its overtones would be naturally misunderstood. Now that is why, as you rightly say, he comes at it obliquely with parables and figures and images because, and I may not have brought this out sufficiently tonight, in which case I'm sorry, um, so often truth is grasped more by the imagination than by uh, a plus B equals C. In other words, Jesus is pulling back a little veil and saying, hey, just peep through here. Now, supposing something dot, 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 and inviting, because part of the point is that it's not a package where he's saying, okay, here's the kingdom, crunch, take it or leave it. The point of the kingdom is precisely to draw people into it, and they are drawn by that imagination, by that love, and of course by the healings which he was doing, which are signs that something new is happening, a new creation is being born. So these, um, these stories are not so much designed to make sense as to make you, well, to, to make you a citizen of this kingdom. Something like that, and they vary from... from uh, passage to passage, you know, we can talk about the parables, but actually they represent in themselves significantly different literary genres, significantly different speech acts, if you like, so that, for instance, the parable of the prodigal son ends too soon. We want to know, did the older brother come back in or didn't he? And I think it's deliberately left as a cliffhanger. We're so used to hearing Luke 15 read in church that we just know that's how it ends. But actually, if you live 
imaginatively within the, na the, 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 the story, you want to, what happened the next morning? What happened when they woke up the next morning and had coffee together or didn't they or whatever? Um, and the parables are designed to push that question because it's in addressing the next questions, as it were, that the real work is going to go on. A question uh, again on the kingdom. If God's kingdom has been inaugurated in the coming of Jesus, why are things not getting better? <laughs> um, I was trained as a Roman historian before I ever did any theology, and I really do want to say that today's world, not least, not only, but not least, the world as it has been transformed by the gospel is a radically different place with assumptions that have changed so much about forgiveness, about healing, about care for the poor, about all sorts of things, which simply did not obtain in the first century. Even the great philosophers, people like Seneca, who are often hailed by some of the early fathers as great teachers in their own way, were miles away from seeing what some of the very simple, ordinary, hardly educated Christians grasped almost by instinct, that if here are poor people, they need our help. If here are sick people, they need us. You know, there wasn't any sort of public medicine. There wasn't any sort of public education in the ancient world. The Jews did it within their communities. The rest of the world, if you had money, you might be able to get it if you didn't. Tough. It was the church that launched those things. And the reason people became Christians in the early days was not simply intellectual persuasion, though the intellectual arguments were important as well. It's because people were living differently and the world said, what are you doing risking your life by going and nursing people who are sick when they're not even part of your own family? And the answer was, this is the sort of thing that we followers of Jesus find ourselves compelled to do. And so there are all sorts of imperatives which are now built into our culture, which we take for granted, and which the post-enlightenment world has tried to claim for itself, but which actually historically go back to things which the church pioneered. This could become a kind of a triumphalist narrative. And in order to avoid that, we need to say, of course, the church has often got it horribly, horribly wrong in all sorts of ways, and we still do. But we mustn't lose the truth about what has actually changed, what is different in the world today. And it happens in other spheres as well. Obviously, there is great art and music in other traditions, but actually, if you think about Christian art and music over many centuries, the gift that that has given, the imaginative gift of conceiving the world from in a multi-layered way, in a whole different fashion, is quite extraordinary. One of the great Italian philosophers of our day, Giorgio Agamben, says that the idea of rhyming poetry comes into the Western world through the Christian gospel and how, what it's doing with time. That's a subject for a whole other, story, a whole other lecture, no doubt. But I, I guess what's at the heart of this question is what sort of king is it that allows his people to suffer yeah. Is it a sort yeah. of genial fate opening sort of king who asks you politely what you do and then lets you get on with it? Uh, the, the whole matter of theocracy comes in here, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. If, if yeah. he's king, what sort of kingship control is this? Yeah, well, exactly. And that's why, as I said, the Sermon on the Mount is, I think, sketching this very radical idea that God... <sighs> 
What do we know about God? In Genesis 1, we know that God makes humans in his image. And I, in company, this is not an original idea to me at all, I, in company with many biblical scholars, will say that that is fundamentally a vocation, that it's a, a statement about God wanting to work in his world through human beings reflecting his wise, gentle stewardship over creation and reflecting the praises of creation back to God. That is how God has made the world, how he's made it to work. God will not override that um, in that sort of brutal fashion. When things go wrong, it doesn't say, no. You know, the flood story, I think, is about um, the fact that God might have wanted to do that, but that that's not actually what it's all about. And so ultimately the vocation which comes to birth in Jesus is about not God saying, no, no, nasty things are happening, let's stop them, but about God coming to the place of utter pain and shame and degradation and taking its weight upon himself. And where we have seen in Christian history the greatest things happening, it's been when followers of Jesus have been going to the place of pain and even appearing to fail and suffering and not knowing what it's all about, but then astonishingly new things happening as a result. We in the modern world like to think of problems on the technological model. Here's a problem, how are we going to get from A to B? Let's build a road. Okay, job done. Um, God seems to work in a much more subtle, a much more paradoxically humanizing way than that. Yes. He sort of opens the fridge and sees what's there and tries to uh. use it. <laughs> Not the image that came immediately <laughs> to my mind, but... Um. Well, you know, I'm trying to be imaginative here. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> um, some questions coming in about your point about we only hear the Gospels in bits and pieces. Um, go to church, you know, you get the, the lectionary... Uh, reading. Uh, a question here, and there, there are a couple of them saying, how do we help our churches and people understand the entire flow of scripture, the larger narrative? How, how do we go about that? That, that is a real problem. Um, having been slightly cheeky about my dear American friends earlier, let me say one of the things the American churches do really well is adult Christian education. They know that it matters and they get on and do it. In the average parish church in this country, the UK, if you said to people, right, we're going to have a service at 8.30 and another service at 10.30 and at 9.30, you're all going to be here and we're going to have 12 different classes on this and this and this, they'd look at you as though you really had completely lost your marbles. We just don't think in our culture that Christianity is something you need to learn about. Um, but where you do, where you get even a glimmering of that, then you can start to do things about the biblical narrative. You can start to encourage people, perhaps with modern translations, to read right through Matthew at a sitting. Why not? If you were reading some great novel, you'd read that amount uh, in a sitting quite easily. Um, and to get a sense of the flow of it all. And you won't remember it all, but that's not the point. When you come out after a two-and-a-half-hour theatrical performance, you don't remember every bit of it, but it's changed you. You've been living in the narrative. And yes, the, the putting together of the biblical narrative so that you understand the sweep from Genesis to Exodus, from Genesis to Deuteronomy, from Genesis to Revelation, etc., and how that all works, that's difficult. And it's actually risky. It's possible to get it wrong, twisted, distorted. That's why we need one another. 
but it's also why we need actors. Um, I saw several years ago Paul Alexander doing John's Gospel, and Alec McCown used to do Mark. Many churches have got people with dramatic talent in their congregations, give them their head, say, okay, next Sunday night, or three weeks' time, or whenever, I want you to do the book of Revelation, or the Sermon on the Mount, or Mark, or something. Isaiah 40:55. This would open people's eyes to the way that Scripture actually works in a way that we just normally never even imagine. One, one, one last thing: a few years ago in Durham, we did a uh, a Lenten Big Read program, and one um, parish church decided to take Luke's Gospel and actually, instead of reading Luke during the Eucharist, they did the Eucharist during Luke. So they had a large chunk of, of Luke, then an opening hymn, then the next bit, then some opening prayers, and so on. And it was a, it was a, I gladly gave it blessing. It was ter- it was a terrific project to sense the whole Gospel with the Eucharist inside it rather than the other way around. Just an idea. Um, don't tell your bishop I told you to. But, uh. I remember seeing Alec McCowan uh, narrate the whole of Mark's Gospel, but it was, it was wonderful, but it was a little bit weird to break off for a chalk ice after the Transfiguration. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, there are questions here um, about... The, the gap that you've mentioned several times, post-enlightenment, separating uh, church and, and society, church and world. A question here, what practical things can local churches do to mend the gap between church and society? Yeah. It varies enormously in my experience, depending on what sort of a community you live in, um, when my dear friend and colleague Mark Bryant came from being an archdeacon in Coventry to being assistant bishop in the Durham Diocese, he discovered that whereas in Coventry, the local, um, I was going to say Politburo, that's the wrong word, the local um, government uh, council officials really didn't want to know what the church had to say. In the northeast of England, the church was de facto a major player. Even among thoroughly secular people, they knew that we were on the tough council estates that they didn't have an idea to do what to do with. They knew that we knew about where the really bad dr- drug problems were, that we were doing the stuff on the, 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 uh, in the old mining villages and so on. And so they would come to us and we, uh, it's not the right image, but we used to think, well, we actually punched above our weight because people were on the ground um, living with the people who were in real difficulty and that got respect. Um, uh, I, one time I went and did the um, street pastors thing with the clergy, one of the churches in Stockton on Tees and I met the local police chief beforehand and he said, look, he said, I'm an atheist I don't care what you get up to in church, what you believe he said, but since they started doing street pastors on Fridays and Saturday nights, Stockton on Tees has been a different place, crime levels have dropped, um, alcohol abuse has dropped, all sorts of other, he said whatever you're doing, carry on, because it's, it's working, and simply at the purely secular level. So the, the, the real stuff on the ground locally is much more important yes. than any grand schemes that I could say here in London tonight, this is what we all should do. And it seems to me each of us in our own communities will, if we think and pray wisely about it, be able to find ways of then doing stuff which will be like Jesus' miracles, um, healing stories and so on, self-authenticating. People will want to come even if they don't know why. 
Uh, and as a follow-up to that, a couple of questions just come in. To what extent, then, do you agree with the political views of the Catholic theology of liberation? And are we called to speak more provocatively into political matters? Um, certainly we're called to speak provocatively, but also wisely into political matters. The danger is, as many people have pointed out, that the church can just, when it thinks we must speak out, what this means is, I have just read last week's New Statesman and I now think that, or possibly Spectator or whichever, wherever you happen to be on the spectrum. And actually life is more complicated than that. The problem is that for the last 200 years, the Western Church has largely forgotten that there is such a thing as Christian political theology. And it goes right back to the first century. And it's a noble and important tradition that people like Oliver O'Donovan have written about uh, extensively. And if we want to engage, we we have to learn the grammar. We have to know what we're doing. Otherwise, it just comes across as sloganeering, which is because in the church we're all busy people, there's always the danger of that. That doesn't mean that if we suddenly see something that we can see as a manifest injustice, we shouldn't be afraid to name it. In other words, we can't just hang back until we've all got master's degrees in political theory or something like that. Um, but there is a wisdom and the church needs to harvest that and nurture that wisdom. Um, but, sorry, the first part of your question was... Catholic about, oh, yeah, yeah, the liberation theology. Mm -hmm. The thing about liberation theology was that for so long, the church had, not intentionally, I think, but had seemed to collude with the powerful... And quite suddenly in the 60s and 70s, some people in Latin America said, look, sorry, we are living in base communities and whatever. What you're saying makes no sense at all. We're going to read Marx instead of the Bible and see what happens. And all sorts of wonderfully explosive things did happen, which has now, I think, really been integrated in a more mature way into the thinking of many Christians. But it was a matter of a, a vacuum for a long time. And suddenly, when somebody sticks a pin into the vacuum, you get all the bang and the rush of air and odd things can happen. But I think it's now time for a more mature reintegration because the gospel is not about something other than God's creation and humans within it it's about the whole show the whole of creation is embraced within the victory of Jesus on the cross you've several times mentioned um, the, the poverty of the church's translation of this faith that the evangelists were conveying and uh, two questions here um, if the church was to understand the true message of the Gospels, how would the church look and act differently from how it is today? And a little bit connected to it, I think, um, if you could change one thing about the church right now, what would it be? Goodness. Um, I, I argued in my book, Surprised by Hope, that we do Holy Week and Easter quite wrong and that we in the Church of England at least, we spend so long worrying about Lent and then Holy Week becomes terribly serious, and, and rightly so, and then the Triduum even more so, and then we have a big bang at Easter and we're all exhausted and we go on holiday. And I've said, no, if Lent is, is a six-week business, Easter ought to continue right through to the Ascension. And this isn't just about liturgy, though liturgy is really important. It says something about who we are. It's about actually the message of the resurrection is about 
the launching of new creation. The Easter stories are not saying, oh, he's back from the dead, therefore we're going to heaven when we die. They're saying God's new creation has begun, therefore we have a vocation. And if we're not celebrating it, perhaps that's why we aren't awfully good at grasping it. So I would love to see us not to de-emphasize the cross. The cross is absolutely vital. The resurrection is the resurrection of the crucified one with all of that means. But to become resurrection people in a fresh way and to pray for grace to do that. And so, I mean, how we celebrate Easter would be, would be one critical thing, critical symbolic and powerful thing. Um, but in terms, of, in terms of, yes, what are we getting wrong? How can we get it right? I'm wary of grand schemes, as I said. Uh, no doubt I've dreamt grand dreams myself in the past, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. What really counts is for ordinary Christian communities, not that there are ordinary Christian communities, but you know what I mean, um, to discern where they are, what the gospel is saying to their community, and to be the agents of whatever transformation is thinkable, possible, imaginable where they are, using all the resources of art and music, all the resources of, 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 of wisdom and scholarship in the process. But I mean, if you were thinking about the institution yeah. and how it would look, I mean, what would this humble church look like? I mean, I was thinking the irony of, of setting up yeah. Caesar versus the kingdom of God, and, sure. so, and sure. I was thinking you're wearing purple, which Absolutely. is Caesar's colour, yep. um, and the church had got caught up into Absolutely. that uh, empire of I, Rome. I, I did ask this evening, if, <laughs> because I'm now a professor, could I please wear a collar and tie, and I was told, no, we want you to look like a bishop, so I exactly. bounced that one back at you. Just so I could um, get a cheap dig in. Yes. Uh, <laughs> no, it fair wasn't enough, fair enough. And it wasn't for um, that. But I mean, yes, <laughs> I think we, we, we don't have to worry too much about the paradoxes and ambiguities. No. There are always going to be lots of, of paradoxes course. and ambiguities, yeah. and if we get too too fussy about that, we're taking our eye off the ball and quite literally focusing on our own navels instead, which heaven knows we're too good at. No, I mean, it's... I, I'm a both-and person. Maybe that's a typically Anglican sort of position. But actually, a great church like this or the abbey where I was privileged to serve or Durham Cathedral um, and so on and so on, they have still a wonderfully powerful symbolic role in our culture. In some ways, paradoxically, they are today's altars to the unknown God. Mm. And lots of people in our society will come into places like this or watch big services on television in a way that they mightn't feel free to do with their local parish church. And I'm not saying that's a good place to stop. I'm saying for our culture, that's actually an interesting symbol to start. But we must then make sure that these great buildings are not saying, look at us, aren't we smarty and clever and all the rest of it, but that these great buildings themselves are powerhouses for the ordinary humdrum day-by-day work of the gospel in the world. I'm, as a bishop, I was always struck by the fact that in the first three centuries before Christianity became an established religion in any sense, the Romans didn't know much about bishops, but they were fed up with them because they were always banging on about the needs of the poor. That's what the bishops were regularly doing. Hey, you're not treating the poor right. So, you know, frankly, the bishop's statement this last week, my view didn't go half far enough, but um, that's what bishops are for, to remind the powers that be that the people that matter most are the people at the bottom of the pile. It's the Psalm 72 vision again. Uh, and we talk about um, the poor 
the marginalised, um, the, the people who Jesus uh, preaches about uh, on the mount. But the question here, how does the kingdom speak about creation and the natural world? What can we learn and how can we lead transformation there? Yeah, it seems to me that the resurrection of Jesus, and this I think John brings out particularly. Um, okay, I'll, I'll start this sentence again, otherwise it would get too long. You, know, you can do that on the computer, but when you're speaking it's harder. Um, the way John tells the story of Jesus' resurrection echoes the opening chapter of his gospel in a way which also echoes Genesis 1. It is the eighth day on the first day of the week very early. And then on the first day of the week in the evening, Jesus breathes on his followers. John tells the story of Easter as the launch of new creation. And this is why the bodily resurrection of Jesus matters so enormously. It isn't that Jesus died and his soul went to heaven. What would that say about creation? That would say that we're really platonic dualists and that God doesn't care about this world. Resurrection, like Jesus' healings, says yes, God does care and is going to put it right. And so for me, the line goes from John 20 very quickly to Romans 8, where the creation will be set free from its bondage to decay to share the liberty of the glory of the children of God and to Revelation 21 and 22 where we see the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth and then with that is caught up um, Isaiah 11 and Habakkuk 2 where we are told that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea and somehow this shimmering mirage-like vision of a creation flooded with God's presence and love that is the ultimate goal and where we are is living between the resurrection of Jesus which has launched that and in the power of the spirit bringing signs of that ultimate renewal to birth and that it seems to me is what gospel new creation ministry is all about that then plays out into healing into ecology into economy into all kinds of issues into art and music and painting and drama not least so that helping people to imagine a world where out of the present pain something radically new is being born and that vision I think helps contextualize so that this person will suddenly get this sense okay I'm signing on I'm going to go and work in ecology in creation care whatever somebody else will see these people over here badly need the sort of help that I seem to have the skills to give but if we've got that big vision of creation renewed then we're going in the right direction I'm going through them quite quickly because I want to get as many as possible in this love story where does hell fit in <sighs> again I have lectured in America many times and again and again hell is the first question and I say, why, why, why? <laughs> I, I am not a universalist. I do believe that God gives human beings the responsibility to reflect his love and care into the world and that it is a matter of mystery but grief and sorrow that some human beings really do seem to say, no, that's not what my life is all about. That's not how I'm going to be. However, the medieval imagination, P 
picking up actually from ancient pagan imagination, not ancient Jewish or early Christian imagination, portrayed the whole thing in terms of a heaven and hell so that our modern Western imagination is shaped by Dante and by Michelangelo in enormously powerful ways which do not correspond to what we find in Scripture. That's where I think C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, um, is so brilliant because for him, heaven and hell are not equal and opposite. Hell is a thin, slight negation. It's a non-reality which has no power, as it were, to blackmail the new creation, heaven. Very interesting. I was once at a big ecumenical service in the Sistine Chapel where you have the story of Jesus down one wall, the story of Moses down the other wall, and then the great judgment scene at the end. And an Eastern Orthodox Archimandrite was sitting next to me, and he said, this I understand, that I understand, but that I do not understand. He said, we in the East just don't do eschatology like that. Frustratingly, at that moment, the Pope and the Ecumenical Patriarch came in, and our conversation was cut off before I was just going to say, so how do you do it then? Because the vision of new creation is not a vision of, okay, 50% that way, 50% that way. That's an image you can work with. It's there in the sheep and the goats and so on. But it's not the ultimate biblical image, which is of radical new creation. Um, and with those who decide not to be part of that, deciding not to be part of that. Though that is, it, it doesn't play the role in the Bible that it plays in much Western imagination. Uh, a couple of questions here wanting to hone in on, on a very uh, specific subject which you touched on uh, and is very timely, but um, how would the people of this cruciform theocracy um, respond to the Syrian refugees? And uh, looking at the situation in Syria, what can we do? Yeah. I, I do not have, of course I don't have, a grand scheme that if only David Cameron would say this, everything in the world would be lovely, because it's taken us a long time to get into this, and as with psychotherapy, if it takes you three years to get into the problem, it'll probably take you three years to get out. And part of the difficulty is that the Western world has been trying to do things to the Middle East for two generations now, ever since the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, well, maybe three generations and that we have blundered around with our narratives, and it's the narratives that are wrong. So that when we hailed the Arab Spring four years ago and assumed, as I said, that all you have to do is topple tyrants and Western democracy will happen, how naive could we be? And it's vital that we get back to a much wiser and more difficult narrative, which is shocking and difficult for us Westerners because actually it's one that we haven't been paying attention to of how wise government might work instead of our ideologies being foisted on them. So all that's going on in the background but you know, if there are women and children dying in the sea in front of our noses, then we can't just say, oh dear, we have a quota and I'm sorry you don't fit. You know, where is the gospel in that? Now, of course, there are all sorts of unscrupulous people that always are thinking, ooh, we can play on the Western heartstrings and we can actually make some money by smuggling people, by doing deals, by maybe some terrorists pretending to be refugees, etc., etc. Well, yes, we've got to be wise. A proper combination of wisdom and mercy. Jesus told us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. 
As one of my colleagues said after a particularly unpleasant college meeting, I know our Lord told us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, but being busy men, some of us find it advisable to specialize. And <laughs> unfortunately, there's been far too much specializing going on. And there's people saying, no, 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 um, we're not going to be taken in. It's all a, it's all a, a, a plot to try and flood us with, with the wrong sort of people. Or other people saying, oh, no, no, we've just got to rush over to Calais and do what we can and so on. And we need both. We've got to be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. This isn't a grand plan, but it is about saying, on the one hand, there is the macro thing, the big narrative, which we have got wrong in the West, and we in the church it's not a cheap thing. I couldn't just go to David Cameron and say, let me tell you the true narrative. But we need to work at it in public and get on with doing that. But at the same time, when there are urgent needs, then if we of all people as Jesus followers aren't in the front line to help them, then shame on us. As I sit here and I listen to you, I'm I get enthused. I sort of I think, good, good. I think oh, I want, to, I, want to, I want to get up and get going and read all his books. Um, and, and to inspirit Mark Oakley is, is a difficult task, so thank you for that. But I've got to ask you something, which is in the back of my mind as I listen to you, is those of us who struggle with doubt, who actually want to believe this, but have dark days, who, or can't quite rationally, emotionally, sign up to it. Do you suffer doubt? It's a good question. Um, I am one of those odd people that has never not believed in God. You know, somebody told me about God when I was little and I've never seen any reason to, to, to stop believing it. Of course, there have been many times when that has been tested, but even the darkest times, and I, I know a bit about darkness too, um, I have felt that it was the darkness of God and I was cross about it rather than the darkness of not God and then where was I? Mm -hmm. However, it seems to me that there are other sorts of doubt as well and one that I would sign up to would be what I call moral doubt. That is, yes, I know perfectly well what Jesus wants me to do, but actually today I really don't feel like doing that. Or I really do feel like doing something that I know perfectly well he would radically disapprove of. And I struggle with that, as I'm sure we all do. And I see that as part of doubt as well because to believe in the gospel is to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and that by baptism and faith in the Spirit, I am part of his risen life. And if I say, actually, but not just for the next couple of hours, please, then that is a form of doubt, even though with my head, because that's just the sort of person I am, I still do believe it. But So, yes, I think we all have, and there may be people who have a much more successful, if you like, moral life than I have, who do have intellectual struggles, which, you know, I'm fortunate in that because I was trained as an ancient historian and as a philosopher, every time I've run into the big questions about can we actually believe this or that, I've had the luxury of being able to go and study the stuff to within an inch of its life and to come back and say, nope, I can stand here and say, I'm, you know, I'm not crossing my fingers or just hoping it'll work. I really do believe that it's true. But then the doubt comes at other levels. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, the levels of depression, the levels of um, all sorts of things. So, so yeah, there are other struggles, and we shouldn't sort of separate them out. It's all part of the interlairedness. And, and finally, I'm afraid, but there are, um, I think, three questions here very similar. 
um, and I think it's connected. Can you just tell us a little about how your life of prayer has grown or has changed through your Christian life as you study the Gospels? Wow. Um, I, I'm a typical Anglican. I don't normally talk about myself if I can help it. Um, and I wasn't actually expecting that question. I, I started to pray as a little boy because my parents taught me how we went to church. Um, I grew up with the great hymns, with knowing many of the psalms because I sang in a choir. So all of that was just part of who I was with the Bible stories, though not necessarily in the way I would now try to see them. So I had that kit from an early age. Um, I learned the practice of devotional Bible reading during my teens, of reading a passage every day and praying that God would speak to me through it. And then I kind of rediscovered that actually the Anglican tradition is all about Bible, Bible, and more Bible, and morning and evening, and many other times as well. And that morning and evening prayer actually contain a huge amount of scripture which flows through one's consciousness like a stream flowing down a mountain and shaping the rocks on the way. That's the idea as well. Some rocks are rather recalcitrant to that, and, but that's the idea. Um, of course, when I was in public ministry, I was part of the worshipping communities that I was part of and kept up my own private reading, usually early in the morning. And because of who I am and my training, I've tried to read the scriptures in the original languages for now for many years. And though you know my Hebrew still isn't as good as it should be, I basically basically do that stuff. Curiously, now that I'm not a practicing bishop, as it were, what do I do? I attend church regularly, but day by day I use the old Anglican form of morning prayer, mm. which I grew up with, and the readings I read in the Hebrew and Greek, and I find that where we now live out in the country, praying um, the tedium, for instance, is wonderful. I pray... Um, uh, about the whole earth being full of God's glory and I'm looking out on the sea and on fields and on mountains and it's a, it's a luxury. I love buildings like this but I actually love God's cathedral even more. So um, there's a sense of integration for me and I'm not complacent about that. I don't think I've arrived somewhere but that's how it is for me. And within that framework, it's natural then to hold in the love of God all kinds of people and situations, which I do, so that, for instance, right now, as we speak, and some of you may know him, and please pray for him, Richard Hayes, who I mentioned, is today having a scan to see whether his pancreatic cancer has um, responded to chemotherapy or not. And this is a very difficult day for him and his family. Um, but... I find that with the discipline that I have, things like that can, as it were, come into prominence and be held in the prayer of the day um, with the Jesus prayer, which I also use, and with praying in tongues, which I also do. I mean, so I'm, I'm fairly eclectic. Again, typical Anglican, a bit of this and a bit of that. Um, <laughs> well, thank you, for, thank you for your honesty. I'm afraid um, that our time has, has come to an end. Um, I, I want to... On behalf of everybody here, not only thank you for your life's work, which isn't over. Um, <laughs> thank you. Glad you said that. Uh, but, I mean, has been so fruitful. And as I, as I said, has, has touched so many people um, with lots of backgrounds and different interests. 
And, and the one thing it seems to me that you, you have the great gift to do is to convey your own enthusiasm and uh, to inspirit people with um, that love of Scripture. And I loved reading not long ago, you, you wrote, if you're a Christian, you're just a shadow of your future self. And I felt as I was listening to you today, that's, that's what you've given me tonight, is a sense that there's more for me to do yet. There's more for me to learn about these Gospels that I think I you know, can preach about, thank you very much. And I feel that um, you really have made me aware that there are lots more chapters yet that I've got to begin in my own, and I'm sure many people feel that as well. You also wrote, when we learn to read the story of Jesus and see it as the story of the love of God, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, that insight produces again and again a sense of astonished gratitude, which is very near the heart of authentic Christian experience. I think your faith and your scholarship is infused with that astonished gratitude. And I think we also tonight have an astonished gratitude for you. So thank you, <laughs> thank you. Bishop Tom Wright. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.